Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is Karen Stefano, author of the story collection, The Secret Games of Words. And I'm delighted to have with me today uh, David Ulan, author of, among other books, The Lost Art of Reading, Why Books Matter in a Distracted Time. How's it going, David? It's going well, Karen. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. It's funny, just before um, we started this podcast, I was um, furiously emailing all my L.A. writer friends because I'm going to be out there in a couple of weeks for the L.A. Times Festival of Books. And so I'm just, oh, um, it's very much on my mind. I assume, I assume you go to that every year. I, I do. I mean, when I was at the L.A. Times, um, I was heavily involved in organizing it. This is the first year in... Oh, it feels like a century, but this is the first year since, um, I think, 2005 that I haven't been involved in the organization of it. I'm just going as a participant, and um, so I'm looking forward to, um, you know, to, to having the kind of private citizen experience of it, where I don't have to put out fires all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it'll be a completely different and uh, better ex- experience. For well, more relaxing, certainly, or I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's my first time going, so I'm ex- I'm excited. Um, it's I'm, an I'm amazing thing. I'm really. I mean, I I I've, I've gone. I think I've probably gone everyone. I, I you know, it's just uh, it's a great event, both because of the book focus, but also because it's really become a kind of civic event. Um, and you you know the city really comes out, and so <clears throat> even you know there's there's also there's certainly a ton of book stuff, but there's other stuff as well. But you know, but on some level, it's also just a really <clears throat> beautiful weekend. Usually, it's you know usually weather's great. Um, U- USC campus is beautiful, and it's just kind of great to be in a human sea of um, you know, of, and, and you really kind of see the city come alive. It's great. Yeah, well, I can't, I can't wait, uh, and I, I understand that it's, it's populated. It's not, it's not like AWP or or other events that are really more writer central, but it's, it's, uh, it's reader centered, is from what I understand. That this it's a real, it's a real readers event, um, and I think you know, both from the point of view of having, you know, attended it and also participating in it, I think that's the, that's the biggest, um, that's the biggest deal. It's really, it's reader focused. The writers are accessible to readers, um, both in terms of, you know, pals and presentations and also signings. Everybody's on campus and it's just great to sort of, I mean, I, I never bought into the death of reading stuff that, you know, seems thankfully to have kind of quieted down, but was, um, you know, was a big, conversation starter, you know, five, six, seven years ago, but this event and others too, I mean, it's not the only, there, there are a lot of uh, excellent book festivals across the country, but this event really puts the lie to that idea of the death of reading. It's, you know, it's all about the readers. It's all about the books. It's not about the business. Um, and there's something really great about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. It's, it sounds like it's going to be refreshing. And that's the perfect segue into uh, our topic today. Uh, Most of my podcasts with authors are about craft and about writing. Uh, And this one, uh, obviously, will center around reading, the lost art of reading, to be be exact. So let me just uh, plunge right into my, my questions. Tell me, what exactly does 
reading mean to you? Um, reading to me is a kind of, it's a, it's a lot of things. Um, on the most basic level, obviously, it's uh, a, a, an act of communication or an act of engagement. Um, first in the text, whatever the text happens to be, and in the imagination or language or ideas or thinking of the writer that you're engaging with. Um, but it's also, I think, a real process of, of community in a sense, a, a community that begins with that interaction between writer and reader or reader and book, um, and then extends outward both metaphorically in the sense that, you know, we're all reading individually, but other people are reading what we're reading. We're part of a kind of a virtual community, not necessarily meaning one that takes place online, although sometimes that as well, um, that sort of builds around a book. Um, and that comes out sometimes in conversations. I've, you know, a book that I've have been thinking about a lot about lately because I wrote about it and I've been teaching it is uh, George Saunders' novel Lincoln and the Bardo, and I've been having a lot of conversations about that book. It's an interesting, a challenging book. It's formally innovative, uh, etc. But. Um, you know, in the strangest places, people who I didn't know had read that book. So there's something about that aspect of kind of actual community. It, it, it's it's conversation provoking. But I also think fundamentally, and one of the things I talk about in the in in Lost Art of Reading is that it is a kind of act of um, resistance in a culture of flash. Um, you know, reading is not flashy. It never has been. That's that's the best thing about it. It's you know, reading is quiet. But it's also noisy, and it can be noisy or provocative internally. And it requires us to be patient. It requires us to sit um, both with our own thoughts and our own reactions. We're never reading as a passive act. Reading is an active um, function because we have to imagine the language into being in some way. The language comes. The language sort of possesses us. You know, enters us and possesses us, and we have to animate it. Uh, otherwise, it's just static words on a page. We have to think about the ideas. We have to create the scenes. We have to imagine what the characters look like. So there's a strong element of reader participation. It's a back and forth. Um, but at the same time, we have to wait. <clears throat> Books don't reveal themselves in the first, or good ones don't anyway, in the first five pages. They let us um, sit with them for a while. And sometimes they confound us. Sometimes we have to learn. Actually, in my favorite books, they teach us how to read them. We have to kind of... Um, we have to learn what the writer's trying to do as we experience it. So we've got to be on our toes and active and engaged. And we live in a culture, I think, that encourages passivity and um, and you know and, and quick judgments and you know is anti-patient. You know, you know, as you can look at it in the news culture, something happens and we are asked or required both as journalists and also as readers of journalism to respond, have an opinion instantly. We, you know, if, if we're, if we say, you know, I need to think about this for a little bit, people look at us as if we're a little bit um, slow on the uptake. So I think reading is a real um, antidote for that. I also want to say, however, that I don't think reading should have to, or necessarily does have to fulfill any kind of function at all. Um, you know, it, I think the activity is, it has value simply in and of itself. But in terms of those social applications, for me, especially in the culture that we're living in now, that notion of slowing down, paying attention, thinking, making some kind of assessments, provoking critical thought or critical judgment, all of those things are absolutely necessary to the process of reading. You can't read without them. Yeah, well, let, let me dig into that a little bit, a little bit deeper. Uh, you posed the question in, early on in your book, 
How do things stick to us in a culture where information and ideas flare up so quickly that we have no time to assess one before another takes its place? And I, I want to talk to you about what, what your answer to that question is. And, I, and I'm curious to learn whether that answer has changed over the past several years, uh, given that we are in the age of Twitter, we've got the 24-7 media environment, and, and, and all of those constructs. Well, it's interesting. I don't actually know the answer to that question in some ways. I think we all answer it for ourselves, and we don't ever answer it definitively. We answer it in, uh, in increments, or we answer it in regards to specific situations. It's circumstance-related. Um, as a writer, I tend to like to ask questions. The questions that interest me the most, not even just as a writer but as a human, are the questions that don't necessarily come with a ready-made um, answer, the questions that, again, require me to have to kind of be aware and, and thinking, I, you know, for me, the, you know, to backtrack for a second, the book grew out of um, an experience or a set of experiences I had when I was um, book editor at the Times. I was editing the, the book section. And um, I would, I, and, and it, this was shortly after the uh, Obama's first election in 2008. And I found that, it, that I was having a lot of trouble reading. I mean, actually sitting still to read. I was, I was so... Um, provoked by by noise in the culture, whether that noise was important noise, political noise, certainly the election, the 08 election, which felt like there was an enormous amount at stake in that election, um, had gotten me completely worked up in the fact that I could get updates. This was the first time, the first presidential election I had had high-speed internet for, and I do think that that's part of the deal, uh, for me at least. You know, I could get updates instantly, you know, um, any time of the day or night, and I was obsessed with that election, and I was kind of hitting refresh buttons all the time, um, mm -hmm. like a rat in a maze, and so I, I think my attention span really, really narrowed as a result of that. At the same time, I was editing a book section. I was getting tons of emails and phone calls from writers, publicists, whatever, you know, sort of about, you know, coverage and things like that. I was having to field all of that. That's a big distraction or a kind of, you know, again, incremental attention. I can pay 30 seconds of attention to this and 30 seconds of attention to this. And I was assigning a lot of books out for review, which is a very specialized process, at least in my case. You don't have time to read all the books all the way through before you assign them, but you do want to have a sense of them, both in terms of deciding how or whether to cover them and who you might want to talk to about uh, writing about them. So I was reading pieces of books. You know, I'd read the first two chapters of a novel or the first two stories or three essays in a collection or, you know, half a book of poems or something like that. Um, and so I never, so I was, you know, I was sort of belying that what we were just talking about, that sense of why we read. I was reading um, it wasn't a process. It was result-oriented, right? I was reading so I could figure something out and then figure out what to do about it. And I think all of those things kind of created, a, they sort of conspired to create a critical mass of distraction. At the same time, um, the newspaper was really starting to go full bore into its digital transformation and was starting to think about um, quick response and was starting to think earlier than, I mean, in the early stages then it developed further, but was starting to think about social media and how to use social media, how is social media part of the report? 
Um, and so there were a lot of pressures on me as an employee and as a manager of the newspaper to think about those strategies and figure out how to integrate those strategies and, and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the, you know, the posing of that question was, uh, you know, a general question about the culture, but my sense of that question or my sense of those issues was derived from these very specific um, personal experiences. And one of my great frustrations about, um, it's not even daily journalism anymore because of the internet, it's weak, it's, it's hourly journalism or, you know, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, sometimes even minutely journalism was that as a critic and, you know, and in my other life as an essayist, I, my entire work life is constructed around thinking and around sort of puzzling things out and trying to work through drafts and often writing my way to some kind of uh, conclusion or some kind of idea. And in that sped up landscape, you don't have time for that. So I think it was a, it was a reaction to two things. One was the kind of overload of information and the overload of, of, of stimulation. I was like an overstimulated child um, so that I couldn't quiet my mind down to concentrate. And also the kind of requirements to produce um, cogent, opinionated work quickly, which is difficult if you're trying to do something other than merely respond to the surfaces. Um, I do think this is still a kind of, um, I mean, I, I think this is a huge problem in the culture. That, again, the need to respond to everything immediately. The fact that, you know, a news story breaks and all of a sudden there's 20 million tweets or Facebook posts or whatever, and then, you know, six hours later, we're on to something else. It's not that initial reaction. I'm glad that people are engaged and outraged about things that they need to be outraged about. And, um, but I also think that we kind of, this illusion that somehow we can address a question and then put it away as quickly as we do, I don't think does us any good. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a critical mass of distraction and the sped up landscape and how that kind of creates an impossibility of quieting our minds. And so... I, so I don't know if that, I can interrupt. I, I, I don't know that I would say it's an impossibility. I think it puts a burden of responsibility on us that we cannot assume that we're going to have that space um, as we once might have. So we have to f decide, do we want it? And if we want it, then we have to figure out how to carve it out or how to preserve it. Right. No, I, 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 I agree with you. And it has to, I think it has to be a really conscious process uh, because if we're, if, if we're not careful with our minds, you know, I'll hit, I'll hit the the news app on my phone and I can hit it virtually every minute and uh, be given a new story every minute. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting because I find that I find myself getting agitated. Uh, and if, if I do really want to quiet my mind, I have to have the self-discipline to not engage in certain behaviors like like that one is just one example. Uh, exactly. But let me, yeah. But let me use this as a segue uh, to to uh, another question. In you know, again, this I'm hanging on your words that this critical mass of distraction. Why do, why does literature matter 
today, especially now, when, at least in my mind, our nation seems to be at such a perilous crossroads? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, there's two things I'd say. The glib answer is that, you know, in some ways, the, the, the present that we're living in is just a terrible novel. I mean, I've said repeatedly in various yeah. contexts, if one of my students were to turn this in as a work of fiction, I'd fail them. It's badly designed. The characters are, are, are two-dimensional and not really believable or frankly realistic except that they are actual humans who exist so in fact they are believable and realistic um it's predictable it's it's predictable and yet also at the same time requires logic leaps that are you know that that make no sense right the logic holes in this narrative are so huge that it's it's unbelievable it would be unbelievable except for the fact that it's real if it was a tv series um, I mean, I don't watch a lot of, uh, of you know, I, if something has a big logic flaw in it, it loses me. Um, if this were like a TV series, it would never have gotten on the air. But it is a, um, but it's real. So it, you know, so it, that, so it, there's a real cognitive dissonance to the current situation, I think. You know, to go back to the original part of the question, which is, you know, why does literature matter? I'm not sure that literature does. I mean, I'm not sure that it's literature's responsibility to matter, I guess. I, I think literature matters profoundly. Um, and I know many people who think literature matters profoundly. I also know a lot of people who, for whom literature doesn't matter at all, who are, you know, engaged, intelligent, thoughtful, critical thinking citizens, um, but literature is not the, is not that, that frame of reference. So I want to be careful about making a blanket statement um, that literature is all things for all, um, for all people. As for why, as to why it matters to me, and, and in some ways, frankly, as to why it matters to me in this moment, which is both different and not different from other moments, um, it matters to me for a few reasons. First of all, it matters to me because I'm a, I'm a story junkie, and so I cannot make it through my day without some sense of narrative, some sense of story. I'll provide that sense of story to myself um, in terms of my activities or what I think they're, what I think they mean or what I think they're doing. I do that on a regular basis. Um, I do it in terms of my own writing. I do it in terms of reading. I tell stories. I listen to stories when people, you know, even like when my daughter comes home from school, I ask her, you know, I don't say, tell me the story of your day, but you know, she'll tell me something and I'll just sort of pepper her with questions. Hopefully not because I'm nosy or intrusive, although she may disagree with that, (laughs) but, um, but because I want to hear the story, like what happened, what happened? Um, So that's one thing. And I think that narrative, you know, we are um, human beings are narrative making animals. That's one of the things we do. I actually think it's it's biological or, you know, instinctive in some way. I think it's it's core to our identity as a species. Um, We tell stories all the time about all sorts of things, large and small. All of our basic constructs are narrative. Um, You know, nation is a narrative. Religion is a narrative. uh, Family is a narrative. Career is a narrative. Achievement is a narrative. Many of these narratives are flawed or false, um, but that doesn't make them any less powerful for those who believe in them. Um, obviously, our personal stories, our identity, you know, here's who I am, here's how I live, here's what my belief system is, right? Why do I believe the things I do? Well, I can tell you a story about that. There, you know, there, there, it all grows out of narrative. So I think that there is a deep and abiding narrative core 
<clears throat> in the human experience. And so literature helps us tap into that. Also, I think it establishes, I mean, one of the cliches about literature, um, particularly narrative literature, is that it encourages empathy. But it's also like, uh, you know, like many cliches, it's true, right? And I think that um, literature, whether it is me reading um, a narrative about someone who is like me or who shares certain um, circumstances with me, whether they be, um, you know, in terms of background, whether they be in terms of, you know, where I live now, whether they be in terms of like family dynamic, whatever. Um, you know, sometimes I read those narratives to to be reassured or to see what someone else, <clears throat> or you know, just a sort of an experience that's common to me. If I read um, about someone who is completely different. Than, than, than I am, someone from a different culture, someone um, from different, you know, different age, different gender, different perspective, all of those things, their humanity is always front and center. So I think that literature, like all art, is always about humanity. We're always connecting with humanity. Jane Smiley, in her book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, suggested that if world leaders read more fiction, they'd get into less wars. I've always kind of liked that idea, although I'm not I don't really believe it, but I, I wish I did. Um, but I do think well, the point she's making is that they would have empathy for the people. You know, if, for instance, George Bush, um, you know, George W. Bush had, had read a bunch of, um, of Iraqi fiction, let's say, for argument's sake, maybe he wouldn't have been so quick to, um, to invade Iraq because he would have been aware of the humanity of the Iraqis rather than just painting them as a two-dimensional other. And I think that that is true. And I think that's true, not just of literature. For instance, I think that one of the, um, you know, a, a driving force in the acceptance of marriage equality and, uh, in, in general and, and in specific, I'm sorry, and, and gay rights in general, I think has a lot to do with um, gay characters on sitcoms. I think that that's a, a real social phenomenon going back to Billy Crystal in Soap and, you know, up through American Family, uh, you know, all these, these, these kinds of, they, um, you know, there is a way in which art, literature, um, cultural production puts people in our living rooms. We become intimate with them. And even and, and they can't, it can't help but get inside our skin and change the way we think. So I think that that's a really important function of literature. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, and since I'm just talking about television, I think there are other ways as well as literature or other, um, other, other forms of production other than literature that also do that. Um, the key to it is narrative. Through narrative, we develop character. Um, characters become individuals, they're human, we identify with them as human, we find commonality. Even if they're different, um, we find that commonality. And I think that that is absolutely essential. Yeah. That, that Billy Crystal on Soap, I haven't thought about that show in uh, a hundred years. Um, uh, that was, I, I, I loved that. I love that show. Um, it's, it's so funny bringing back that bringing back that memory. Um, I believe, I, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe that, it, that the Billy Crystal character, is, it's been so long since I've seen it, I can't remember his name, but I, I believe that was the, f that, that the character he played was the first openly gay character on, uh, on American television. I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's right. Yeah, I think, I, I think you are right. Uh, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I think that, that makes sense given, given when that show 
was on and um, and we're both dating ourselves here uh, by even referencing that show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I find that happens to me more and more. <laughs> oh God, me too. Um, anyway, uh, moving right along out of that. Um, th- this is usually my final question on this season of these podcasts, um, but it, it loops into uh, what you were talking about with uh, George Bush and Iraq. And that question is the one I've stolen from the New York Times uh, book review uh, sections where they conduct interviews. If you could require the president, our current president, to read one book other than your own, what would it be? Hmm. To be perfectly honest, because I don't, well, uh, to be perfectly honest, because I don't believe that our current president has ever read a book um, in his lifetime, I think I would, be, I would begin by requiring him to read the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> That's, it's, it's funny, I, I did a podcast with uh, Shauna uh, Mann uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, this year on these podcasts, I've been asking every single guest that question. It was a question that never really mattered to me until recently. And now it matters to me very much. And she, she put the question back at me and uh, I I was completely off guard and um, realized I didn't have my own answer to this, to this very important question. And since talking to her, um, I've been I've been giving it a lot of thought, and that was that's exactly my my answer too. Is that just for a start, if he would read the Constitution, I think that would be uh, a, a good a good first step. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, there's a part of me. There are other things I'm sure that he should read, but it seems to me that he is so clueless. For all of his many sins, and I don't want to necessarily diverge into that because then this podcast will be seventeen and a half hours long. But um, for all his many (laughs) sins, in in, you know, on on some level, I think his greatest sin is that he has no understanding or appreciation for the basic uh, building blocks of American democracy. It's not even in his frame of reference. I mean, I you know, I, I like every like many people, I would love to see his tax returns, but frankly, I would love someone to um either through freedom of information or subpoena, I'd like to see his voting record because I would bet you he hasn't voted. I, I bet you when he voted for himself in 2016, it was the first time he'd voted in quite some time. So I think he is, uh, you know, the, for me, one of the most dangerous things about him is not just his ignorance, but his willful ignorance about the um, the institutions of the government that he is now, you know, in in charge of. Yeah, and yeah, and just again picking up on your words, cluelessness and uh, lack of lack of connection. Uh, really, um, I haven't I haven't uh, gone online uh, to look at it yet. But someone was telling me the other day that uh, in the official White House photo, uh, Melania is wearing some you know twenty five carat diamond ring. And, you know, it's just like, it's really <laughs> a, a 25 carat diamond ring in your official White House photograph. It's just, it's just kind of ridiculous. But that's, again, um, I, I, I digress. Um, let me jump 
jump around some more and I really am kind of zigzagging all over the place in my questions to you today. But you begin your book, The Lost Art of Reading, by recalling a time when you read Lord of the Flies in junior high school. And you talk about how your teacher detailed the symbolic structure and how it just sort of blew your mind. And then you you note in the book that even then you knew you wanted to be a writer and had begun to read with an eye to how a book or how a story was, was built. And every writer, I think, can't help but read this way and I'm that's certainly the case for me but sometimes I feel like that just takes some of the simple joy out of books before I became a writer I just I just read books to escape to enjoy them to have them blow my mind and now I I read them in a completely different way. And I, I kind of wonder sometimes if I'm depriving myself of some level of joy. Do you do you agree with me on that or do you disagree or do you? Do I think you, it's inevitable. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. That moment of reading Lord of the Flies, I mean, I think it's inevitable in a lot, both in an academic setting and also in a writerly setting. That moment reading Lord of the Flies um, and sort of experiencing that level of critical dissection. And I think that I think of it that way as a kind of dissection. It's almost as if um, the book is is a corpse. Um, I I, I found that to be highly counterproductive. Um, I find it highly counterproductive as a critic, frankly, after, you know, that that was an experience in eighth grade before I ever began to think about criticism. But I find it highly counterproductive as a critic. I found it deeply, deeply counterproductive as a reader and really counterproductive as a writer because it creates a kind of mythology around um, around literature or art. It doesn't only have to be literature. It can be any art, which suggests that um, these writers or artists are somehow smarter than everybody else and are so completely conscious of what they're doing that there's no room for... Um, for innovation or feel, right, or music in some way. Um, and also, frankly, even as I said in the book, at that age, I knew I wasn't smart enough to do that. There's no possible way. I don't think Golding was either. I, don't, I think that that was an incorrect um, analysis of, of his work. I'm sure the symbolic stuff is all there. I don't think that he put it all in intentionally. I'm sure he put some of it in intentionally, and some of it was what a, a writer I recently call, uh, interviewed called The Happy Accident. And I'm, I'm a big believer in The Happy Accident as a writer. Um, I, as a writer, tend to come out of a much more improvisational um, landscape and sort of write my way to, um, to what, what a book or an essay or a piece of writing is about. That's true of criticism as well. And when I was a <clears throat> full-time critic, I was much more interested in I mean, I was certainly interested in critical thought and critical argument, but I was also interested in emotion and passion, um, positive or negative, right? I mean, we respond to any work of art where we, or hopefully we do, um, out of an emotional reaction first, um, you know, and I think that that's really important to pay attention to, you know, why do I love this? Do I love this book? Yes. Okay. Why? Then you can get into that. But the first question is, do I love it? Do I hate this book? What do I feel about this book? Is this book problematic? Okay. What then, then we can move into why, um, from a writer's point of view, I think it's absolutely destructive in a sense that, um, 
as I said, it's intimidating, and it doesn't allow us to make mistakes because we assume somehow that the artist or the writer is some kind of you know super being, and that they are more clued in than we are. When in fact, that's absolutely um, untrue. I think so. There's that reading, though. I think once you become a writer and begin to be aware of the technical side of writing, structure, language, um, even punctuation, right, paragraph breaks, you know, voice, all of those elements. Um, you never read the same way again. You never read with the same kind of innocence or the same kind of um, mindlessness in a way. I don't mean mindless in a bad way, but like, you know, a kind of lack of consciousness. You never just let the book sweep over you again because you're always thinking about what that writer is doing. Even if it's a book you're reading for pleasure, or for pleasure, whatever that means, um, you're still noticing, right? You're noticing the craft. You're noticing the style. You're noticing the construction. Um, it's impossible not to because that's part of the, the water in which you're swimming in general. And so I often think that, and I tell students this all the time, you know, in some ways the, the, um, the side effect, the unfortunate side effect of being a, a writer and thinking about craft is that you will always be thinking about craft and you will never be able to read a book with that same kind of unconscious purity um, again. And, I, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's a trade-off. You know, like all trade-offs, it's, it's got its benefits. I'd rather be a, a, a kind of you know, conscious writer than an unconscious one in some way. Um, but at the same time, I miss that sort of just getting lost in a book. I, just, um, I still get lost in books, but I'm always kind of, there's a part of my brain that's always observing um, what the writer is right. doing and how they're pulling it off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so um, with with that comment, I have to share with you this. Uh, you know, sounds uh, kind of schizo schizophrenic uh, point of view in, in terms of my approach to reading. But I know objectively that the best thing I can do as a writer working to improve her craft is to read. But unless I'm on a plane or waiting for a plane, I these days just feel horrifically guilty about the simple act of sitting and reading. Do you know anyone else who feels that way? And can you offer me any words that can help me overcome this sense of guilt? Guilty for what reason? Uh, I should be writing. I should. I'm. I'm a writer. I'm not a reader. This is. Uh, I should be doing something that's more productive, that generates something. It's. You know, I've shared this with a lot of my writer friends, and they they say you're. You know, you're you're crazy. You are absolutely, absolutely insane. Question by I don't, I, yeah, I mean, to me, um, I, that's exactly why I love reading because um, it's work without being work, you know what I mean? Um, like writing's hard. I, you know, whatever I write, we all, you know, I write when as much as I can or as much as I need to. I'm also, I should say, I'm not um, doctrinaire about it. I, <clears throat> I don't, I write most days, but I don't write every day. I don't necessarily have a schedule. I mean, I do have a schedule of sorts, but um, 
you know, if I don't write, I don't feel bad if I don't write on a day, um, unless I'm on deadline and it means I'm going to blow it, in which case then I feel bad. But I don't um, feel bad if I don't write on a given day. Um, and reading to me is, I mean, you know, I, we could say I read because it's an essential part of the process and I want to see what other writers are doing and engagement with language and all those platitudes, all of which is, is true, but I also don't think that's why um, – I spend a lot of time reading. Sometimes I will spend reading because it's a way to, to to feel that I'm working when I'm not working, um, or it's a way to hide from work. Right? I mean, if I have a novel, um, you know, or a book that I'm reading, you know, as an example, um, I've been living this semester in Las Vegas because I'm on a fellowship there, and so I've gotten really interested in Las Vegas. I've been reading a lot of books about Las Vegas. Am I going to write about Las Vegas? Maybe. I mean, I'm going to. I've certainly. I've got one essay in mind that I want to write, but I don't think I'm going to write a book about Las Vegas. So, you know, but at the same time, I, it's enough that I, you know, I'm learning this place. I'm fascinated by it. Um, it seems to be related to what I'm doing in my life. Um, it may or may not be related to a piece of writing. Um, but it, it's also a way of getting away from writing. If I'm, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I just want to run away from what I'm writing. And so reading gives me, a, uh, an excuse yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is this is obviously uh, uh, a psychological issue. I'm going to have to work through and overcome. Uh, well, I also think guilt's a great motivator. So you know, I think in whatever way it is, like I feel guilty a lot about writing or production, right? I mean, I you know, um, let's see, how would I put it? In terms of you know, if I am not you know, I'll, I'll create a goal for myself of how much I want to get done, and I'll feel guilty if I'm not working hard enough to get that goal, or the goal is a way of creating a little bit of guilt that will keep my my butt in the chair so that I, um, that I keep writing. But, but reading is really a sort of, again, prob- possibly because I'm reading as a writer, so I'm looking for things. Um, and sometimes I'll do things, you know, like if I'm going to read, uh, like for instance, in the reading book, in The Lost Art of Reading, there were some antecedents, right? There were some books that I had read, uh, most notably Lynn Sharon Schwartz's book, Ruined by Reading, which is a really superb um, little memoir of her reading life that came out in, I think, in 1996. Um, so there were some books that I had read that had sort of inspired me, but when I sort of started thinking about that book and how I was going to write it, what it was going to involve, the balance of some of personal material and critical material, the idea that I knew fairly early on I wanted to write the book as one long continuous essay. There are no chapter breaks in the book, so you, once you're in, you're in, and there's no if you're re- if you're a compulsive reader like I am, which is to say I will not stop in the middle of a chapter. Then with a book like that, you're really screwed, right? You're, you're you you read the first five pages, and then you're like, wait, where does this chapter end? And it doesn't end. Then you're on for the long haul, which is sort of what I wanted to do. So I went and looked at a um, you know a number of books like that, um, just basically to see how other writers. I mean, I think it's a useful thing to do. I don't think it's um, you know I think it, it for me it is just to give me a, a sense of model, right? What you know, how have other writers dealt with this? What do I think is working about it? What do I think is not working about it? What what you know what are they modeling for me? Um, but also because it was something that felt like a risk, the idea of writing an entire book with no breaks. There were definitely moments where I wanted to hide from that book. It's been true of every book I've ever written. There's always been moments where I wanted to hide from it. And if I was reading something that seemed to relate to it, whether a book about 
you know, a book of criticism or a book about someone's reading experience or, you know, an extended essay or even, you know, a fiction, right? There's, you know, novellas that also operate that way, an extended piece of narrative writing that didn't have chapter breaks. I felt as if I was um, gathering useful information, even if it wasn't, even if I never ended up using that information. And so it allowed me to feel that I was still engaged in the work and engaged in the process of creating that book, even if the book itself was... Um, was was off-putting, and I didn't want to actually be writing sentences that day. And so, again, I mean, I think a lot of writing is such a solitary act, and writers, each writer does it differently, and so much of that process, for me at least, involves kind of psychological trickery or tricking oneself, you know, getting, cutting through one's own defenses, whether it be the editorial voice, you know, it's the same thing, like often I'll tell myself, you know, you're just writing a first draft, so it doesn't really matter if it's bad, because nobody necessarily is going to see it. It's just going to be you, and you can always fix it before you send it, or you're writing material that's really raw and revealing, and, you know, and maybe that's terrifying, but you don't actually have to, I mean, all the while you know this isn't true, but you don't actually have to send that work out. No one's going to require you to publish that work. You're just writing it. Just write it. See what happens. I find that I'm often kind of telling myself um, little white lies to kind of get past my own defenses. And so reading kind of can operate in that way, for me at least, a little bit as part of the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, I, I know that it, that reading, the act of reading just necessarily is going to improve a writer's craft. Uh, so yeah, so you, you've helped me to to kind of to kind of get over it and uh, give myself permission to uh, read. Um, so you know, you're talking about Las Vegas, and that uh, is the perfect segue to uh, what will be my last question to you, uh, since we're running out of time. Uh, tell me what you're working on right now in your writing life, if you'd be willing to do that. I will. I tend to be very um, protective of work in progress, so I will only say that I'm working on a memoir. Um, it's a, and I won't say what it's about. It's a book that I've been thinking about for a long time. I was going to say 10 years, but it may even be a bit longer than that. Um, and it, that I sort of trying to figure out how to approach it was was complicated. It's been through. Um, a number of, not necessarily full drafts, but there have been a lot of kind of attempts to figure out how to write it and how to integrate. There've, there's a there's a lot of sort of different overlapping pieces of it. Um, but it seems to be moving forward, knock on wood, which I'm actually going to do in reality while I'm sitting here since I'm superstitious. <laughs> I hear uh, you. <laughs> and, um, and it's been fascinating for me to have, um, how would I put it, the time there is unconstructed. So I have, you know, I've got a fellowship. Um, I've got a place I'm living. I've got an office on campus that I work at, but I have no, I have no teaching requirements. And I've got a semester off from my, um, from USC where I, I teach. And so um, to have, I'm used to writing as part of a multiply scheduled day. You know, I'm used to writing depending on what the other external requirements of the day are, I build my writing life around that. So on days when I'm teaching, if I'm teaching in the afternoon, I write in the morning. If I'm teaching in the morning, I write in the afternoon. Um, and 
so the idea, or if I have a deadline on another piece, I you know I kind of do you know I work I work them around I work everything around itself. The the kind of amazing I didn't even realize that this was what I was getting into, but the amazing privilege of having no daily schedule. If you told me that up front, I would have told you I would be scared that I would basically spend my entire day um, wasting time. But the idea of having no daily schedule, no no meetings, right? No no classes to meet, no. Um, no require no place I have to be except sitting at a desk writing has been this incredibly luxurious and in many ways freeing um, process. I've gotten a ton of work done. Um, some of it will end up in what I, I assume some of it will end up in a finished book, and much of it will end up being cut. But that's okay. It's moving forward, and that idea that that the ability or the kind of um, privilege of being able to spend four months just immersing in the project and kind of, again, in the same way that I think books as we read them teach us how to read them. For me, books as I write them teach me how to write them. And I need to be able to have, this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, I need to be able to have that space and that time to just sit with it and um, think about it and make mistakes. I just, you know, I just cut a bunch of pages that I didn't, you know, I needed them because they got me to other pages that I do need. But uh, then when I got to those pages, I was like, oh, right, this is what I needed to be doing. Those, those, those are just scaffolding. So I, you know, I cut, those, I cut those out. I needed to be able to have the time to make, I don't even want to call it a mistake, but to write those pages um, or else I wouldn't know. I wouldn't have necessarily been able to get to where I needed to go. So that luxury um, that which is all about time and all about um, awakeness, right, or awareness or, or consciousness um, in terms of what the story or the narrative is doing or what the narrative is telling me it needs. All of that has been really, um, really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds luxurious. And it's probably helpful, too, that it's a finite amount of luxury, right? Um, because it, since it's since it's a, it's not the the rest of your life off to write full time. That it's a semester's period. That probably kind of keeps you honest in a way, right? I, I think that's absolutely right. And talk about guilt. You were talking about guilt. I mean, this is where guilt becomes a great motivator because I'm very aware of the ticking of that clock. Yeah. And so, you know, I constantly am having these sort of conversations in my head, you know, like, don't waste the time. Don't waste the time. You only have X number of weeks left. Um, so make sure you use it. And so there's that yeah. sense, too. You can call it guilt. You can call it threat. I mean, I think, you know, we all are always kind of threatening ourselves or something like that um, in some way. But it all does operate in that in that same way. Make, you know, this is, an, this is a real opportunity. It's a real it's a real privilege. I'm really aware of it as a privilege. So take advantage of it and yeah. don't just sit there and, um, you know, stay uh, stay at the desk. Well, uh Congratulations. I'm excited for you, and I can't wait to read that memoir when it comes out, uh, whenever, whenever that will be. Um, but, David, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Uh, you're, you're brilliant. I think I'm going to uh, listen to my own podcast again and again and again just to hear your words. Um, I love reading your words. I love hearing them uh, on a podcast. Uh, I just thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. I was uh, delighted to be, um, to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for asking me.